You are listening to Danvers Audio, a podcast by the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Thanks for listening. This is Grant Castleberry, and I'm here with Jay Ligon Duncan, Chancellor of Reformed Theological Seminary, and John E. Richards, Professor of Systematic and Historical Theology, and a CBMW board member. Dr. Duncan, it's great to have you in the CBMW office. It's great to be with you, Grant. I uh, remember a couple years ago at a T4G, you uh, got up and you recommended William Gurnell's Christian in Complete Armor. It was a little uh, comical because I think afterwards I saw some guys running to the bookstore to pick it up. But uh, by popular request, do you have any uh, books on your nightstand that you would recommend right now? Well, I I always recommend when I ever get a chance to do it, Thomas Brooks' Precious Remedies mm. Against Satan's Devices. And it's a it is a Puritan classic on living the Christian life and on dealing with the special kinds of temptations that Satan brings against believers, sometimes to tempt us into sin, sometimes to tempt us to doubt and discouragement and to a lack of assurance. And it is a very, very wise book. So he'll, he, he may show you seven or eight strategies of Satan to rob you of assurance. And for each strategy of Satan, he'll show you nine or ten biblical remedies to it. And so the book not only is a help spiritually, personally, I actually think it helps you learn how to apply Scripture when you're preaching and teaching. Hmm. So that's a classic I always love to recommend. Great. Well, let's dive into uh, questions on complementarianism. If I am new to this conversation, uh, I'm being exposed to uh, maybe progressive Christian egalitarian ideals of gender, uh, everything throwing at, being thrown out by the LBGT movement. What is complementarianism? What you uh, define that biblically? Complementarianism is a new word for an old thing. Uh, Christians in all of the great traditions, whether Orthodox, Catholic, or Protestant, mm-hmm. have always believed that the Bible taught that men and women are created with equal dignity in the image of God, Mm -hmm. but with unique and distinctive roles, and that Mm -hmm. men are called in the home and in the church to exercise godly, sacrificial, spiritual leadership, and women are called to respect and to embrace and Mm -hmm. to submit to that spiritual leadership. And that view, which got dubbed complementarianism in the 1980s Mm -hmm. by John Piper and Wayne Grudem and all the folks that that brought together the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, is actually expressing something that all Christians used to believe. Uh, But it has become um, unusual because the culture has changed so dramatically. The culture has been changing Mm -hmm. on this for over 150 years. But the changes that have happened in the last 50 years are more dramatic than anything that we've really seen on this topic, maybe in the history of the world. I don't think that's an understatement to say, because, as you know, until it was it was not until the year 2000 that any nation in the history of the world 
attempted to redefine marriage as anything other than the union of one yeah. man and one woman. So complementarianism speaks into those kinds of realities and says, we want to be faithful to what the Bible says about how you define marriage, how men and women relate in marriage, how men and women relate in the church, and especially how godly male qualified leadership serves the well-being of the whole congregation, men and women alike, in the church according to God's word. So that's what complementarianism is about. So when you started on your theological journey and your theological education, were you always there or were you egalitarian at some point? How did that progression happen? I I grew up in a complementarian home. I grew up in a complementarian congregation. But I was definitely, as a teenager, influenced by the world in this area. Hmm. And no doubt my seminary professors had a profound effect on me. My story is not as dramatic as Mark Dever's. You'll know that Hmm. Mark Dever went to Gordon Conwell, an egalitarian, and hearing Dr. Roger Nicole make the argument for egalitarianism, he became a complementarian. My my progress was not that dramatic, but I, I will say on things like abortion, that that issue was not even on my radar screen until after Roe v. Wade. I'm 13 when Roe v. Wade happens. So as a 14, 15, 16-year-old kid, even though I'm in a conservative Bible-believing home and in a conservative Bible-believing church, very influenced by what peers around me in high school are thinking about that. There's a lot of feminism in the argumentation that followed Mm -hmm. in those years after Roe v. Wade that was just part of the common cultural parlance. And I'm sure that I was influenced by that. Mm -hmm. But my, my professors helped me enormously. And very frankly, just watching my mom and dad helped me. Wow. Hugely. Wow. Well, that gets to personal experience in the family. And this is a pastor. How would you, when you're counseling families, counseling young men, young women, what type of ideals do you want to encourage them to develop in their families? What are you looking for fleshing out a biblical complementarianism in the family? Well, you know, the, the most important thing that a husband and a wife can do is to have a godly relationship themselves and let their children see it. You know, every everybody who feels a deficit in mm-hmm. this area wants to teach their children. And of course, teaching your children is great, yep. but it's the way you live that impresses your children. And that's, that's what I meant when I said a few moments ago that watching my mom and dad was so huge for me. Uh, my, my father was a, a godly lay leader in the local church. He was an elder. Uh, my mother was uh, was theologically trained, a graduate of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, wow. did doctoral work at Northwestern uh, in vocal performance, was a university professor. She was the, without question, the intellectual of the home. So if I had intellectual questions, I went to my mother, but she loved following my father's leadership. And to see a strong, intelligent really powerful in the best sense of that word, woman, love to follow a man's leadership. I cannot even begin to express to you the power that that, and then watching my dad self-sacrificially serve her, care for her, provide for her, lead her, 
there's there there's no teaching series in the world that could have taught me what my mom and dad did just by loving one another, caring for one another, relating to one another in a godly way. If 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 ever there was a couple where a woman could have dominated mm. intellectually, mm. it was my parents. That was never the case. My mother knew how to respect my father in such a way that it really conveyed to me her respect for him. Mm. And you know that, that's just a glorious, glorious thing to see. So I would say to young couples that are asking this question and you've got young children in the home, it's going to be there watching you that is so powerful, not just what you teach. Of course, you want them to have good teaching in the church. Of course, you want to teach them good things, but it's the example that's so powerful. Praise the Lord. Yeah. Yeah, I often hear people say that, you know, they had doubts about complementarianism because it's just so countercultural. But when you see it fleshed out, when you see a husband loving his wife like Christ loves the church, when you see a woman loving her husband, submitting to his leadership like the church submits to Christ, it's beautiful. And it's compelling, I think, to a culture that is really trying to figure out marriage right now. Uh, at its moorings and foundation. So one thing that's kind of interesting the past couple of weeks, uh, you probably saw it on the news with the whole Target uh, removing gender labels. Of course, that speaks to a much deeper issue. Fundamentally, what does it mean to be a man, a woman? Are there differences? And then in this case, are there differences between a boy and a girl? So as a father, I know you are father of uh, – a daughter and a son. Mm-hmm. So oldest daughter is a freshman, right? Uh, just enrolled at University of Alabama. Uh, what are some things that you did differently raising them as a boy and as a girl? Were there distinctions in how you kind of nurtured nurtured one, vice versa, the other? What, what I've done with both of them is I have looked at their strengths and their tendencies, and I've tried to think of those strengths and tendencies in light of the pluses and the minuses that those things bring to their roles that they're going to play in life. So, for instance, my daughter is very, very intellectual. And I have stressed to her over and over, dear girl, when the day comes that you fall in love with a man and and you're ready to marry him, you're going to have to be able to respect him. Uh, and you're going to have to look for qualities in him that you respect because, because you, you think about things very deeply, you know a lot, and it would be very easy for you to set yourself up as a superior. And, of course, I've got my mother to, to, to point mm-hmm. her to. Let me, let me, let me show you a, a very intelligent, very educated woman and how she related to a man in a respectful way. So I've tried to look at qualities, tendencies, characteristics, and look at the what are the pluses and minuses that those things bring into a marital mm-hmm. relationship. With my son, I've, I've tried to stress the importance of his assuming a role of responsibility. You know, boys can be pretty happy-go-lucky yeah. in their teen years, not mm-hmm. thinking about other people, just thinking about having fun themselves mm-hmm. and building into a young man a sense of responsibility you've got mm-hmm. a res- you've got a responsibility to take care of somebody and that's that's not all about romance that mm-hmm. that's about some hard practical self-denying things that you're going to have to learn so i i do think it's good you you 
parents know their children's character qualities, Mm -hmm. and they need to look at those qualities and say, how are those things going to help them in a marriage? How are those things not going to be so helpful in a marriage? And how can I counsel them and prepare them for the day that they're going to be in a marriage? Assuming that the Lord gives them that great blessing. Um, And of course, with daughters, there's the trick. You, you you, you, You have to prepare daughters not only... Uh, for whatever vocational role that they may be headed for, but for marriage. And, and right. you know, a man knows he's going to have to provide one right. way or another for himself or for someone else. Um, a, a, a daughter doesn't necessarily how that's gonna play, know how that's going to play out or for how long. Right. So you actually have to prepare a daughter for multiple roles in that regard and then how to relate to men out of those other roles. That's great. One of the things I love about RTS is your commitment to the inerrancy of Scripture. So from a historical perspective, can you kind of talk about how a commitment to inerrancy of Scripture has gone hand-in-hand with complementarianism? And earlier you talked about how complementarianism is kind of uh, a foundation for marriage. So can you kind of talk about the historical link between those doctrines? And I, I, though I know and have been blessed to have friendships with godly Christians who are egalitarian, I must say that the best argument for egalitarianism um, depends upon the Bible not being inerrant. Um, wow. the, the best argument... I think Paul King Jewett articulated the best argument against complementarianism, and his view is simply this, Paul was wrong. Hmm. And I, I think that's the best argument that you can actually, uh, it, that's, that's the best argument against uh, a biblical view of marriage. Well, it's just wrong. Right. Uh, it's, and so these things are not, you know, th- there are things in the Bible that are hard, that really, really good people equally committed to biblical inerrancy can disagree on. Right. Baptism. You know, yeah. there are there are really, really wonderful people committed to biblical inerrancy that differ on the proper recipients and mode of baptism. But what what we're finding in our own day and time is inerrantist egalitarians are disappearing. You know, in the nineteen fifties, you could have named a lot of evangelical inerrantist egalitarian. Not anymore. Mm. They're disappearing. Mm. And so when you look at the kind of Matthew Vine's arguments for um, same-sex marriage, they depend upon an undermining of a high view of Scripture, even though he claims to have a high view of Scripture. So you can't be an inerrantist, I think, and, um, and, and really make the best argument for egalitarianism. Co- Correspondingly, inerrancy um, privileges complementarianism wherever it flourishes, mm. and and I think that that is actually statistically and denominationally borne out by empirical reality over the last fifty years. Mm. For the pastors and leaders that are listening, there's obviously continual tax on the church on marriage, gender, sexuality. A lot of them are upfront, very clear, uh, compromising marriage on homosexuality. What are some of the more subversive 
kind of behind behind the scenes attacks that pastors and leaders might be thinking about here in the next couple years. Well, I mean, I you know, leaders like Russ Moore have pointed out that the 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 mess that we're in now did not just happen yesterday. Um marriage, gender identity, um proper expression of human sexuality, these things have been under a long-term assault in our culture. And what we're experiencing right now with really, really intelligent people not being able to to say this is a male, this is a female, this is a man, this is a woman, this is a marriage, this is not, that actually flows out of a confusion that's been around a lot longer. And so I, I, I think there is no question that in our churches, investing in strong marriages at the, at the local church level is hugely important. And very frankly, fighting things like pornography. I am convinced that the, the revolution that we have seen legally could not have existed without the assault of internet pornography that we have been under for 25 years now. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up in a world where as a boy, I would have had to have gone looking for pornography. If you're an 11-year-old boy today, pornography is going to come looking for you. You don't mm-hmm. have to go anywhere to look for it. It will come looking for you. Um, it's it's on Tumblr, it's on Google, it's on Instagram, it's on, I mean, it's on Twitter. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. You do not have to go look for it. I would have had to have gone to a place where I would have been terrified to be caught to find it when I was a 15-year-old boy. Now it comes looking for you. There is no way that that has not had a moral undermining effect on our culture. I think it's caused men to lose their backbone. I think if men are gaining pleasure from watching perverted acts in their privacy on the internet, how are they going to stand up and have any moral authority on these kinds of issues in public? I absolutely am convinced mm. that that may be the major factor in this mm. in this cultural revolution that we're watching. And so again, for pastors, it's not just them out there. Yep. It's our own people, their own souls, what they're doing in their private life, what's going on in their marriages yep. and such. We've got to fight for those brothers we and sisters our, there. We've got to police ourselves. Yeah. And... Not every type of sexual sin. Um, yeah, I, I agree. The church has got to call call ourselves to account. Um, if I'm a young man and young woman, I'm thinking about gospel ministry, and I'm looking at different seminaries, uh, why would I want to go to RTS? So what's unique about Reformed well, Theological our, Seminary? Our, if you look at our three historic distinctives, they are... Biblical inerrancy, reform theology, and the Great Commission. Uh, in other words, our founders said, we want a seminary that is absolutely committed to biblical inerrancy. A lot of seminaries talk about having a high view of Scripture, but when you look close, there, there are lots of cracks in the dike. And we have been very serious. All of our professors must affirm uh, their belief and adherence to plenary verbal inspiration, mm. inerrancy, infallibility, and authority of Scripture. That is a, it's a non-negotiable. 
And that means that on historical critical issues, our, our, our guys are going to be rock solid on inerrancy. And, um, and, and so that's, that's one huge thing. And, you know, and I thank God for institutions like Southern Seminary, where we are, we're partners in that. Secondly, we're committed to reform theology, especially the reform theology that's set forth in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, we're not, we are a confessional seminary. We're not a denominational seminary. We, right. we actually have about 60 different denominations um, of, of students who are educated through the RTS system, primarily Presbyterians, Baptists, Congregationalists, Anglicans, and others. But um, that commitment to reform theology, I think, is, I think, in our anti-theological day and age, it actually helps a student to learn a theological system from a definite perspective. Mm -hmm. Even if you end up disagreeing with certain things, it helps you to understand that theology actually tends to hang together, and there there are different types of theological systems. It's not just all go pick and choose this from here, that right. from there, plug it all together. Things cohere for specific reasons. So I, I think it's a good thing, even for people that don't understand the Westminster Confession of Faith, to come and study in a context where they're coming from a definite theological perspective. Third, We've always said we're about the Great Commission. We're not about sort of uh, building a big moat and filling it up with alligators and pulling up the drawbridge and hunkering down in our castle. We're about taking the gospel mm -hmm. to the ends of the earth. So we want an outward-looking uh, missionary Calvinism, uh, a Calvinism that wants to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, wants to see men and women and boys and girls mm -hmm. from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, uh, nation coming to faith in Christ professing him, living for his glory, walking with him, uh, sharing the gospel with others. And so those three distinctives have animated RTS from the beginning, and I, I think they're good things to commend RTS to others. Uh, now, along with that, I might add, we're complementarian. And I, I would just say, if, if you're a young man, young woman, thinking about going to a seminary, go to an inerrantist-affirming, complementarian seminary. Amen. It'll be better for you. Amen. And where are your locations? We are in eight states. Our three largest campuses are in Jackson, Mississippi, Orlando, Florida, and Charlotte, North Carolina. But we have campuses in Washington, D.C., Atlanta, Georgia, Houston, Texas, Memphis, Tennessee, and we're beginning a program in New York City with Redeemer City to City yeah, on September exciting. 8th. Yeah, that's exciting. So exciting. Yeah. I don't know if you knew this, but I was—I think you did. I was a RTS student when I was in the Marine Corps in Japan. Wow. So through the global through, through the global program, yes. that's so terrific. love that program and highly recommend it. So thank you. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and giving us your time. Great to be here with you, Grant. Absolutely, thank you. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to visit us at cbmw.org, where you will find more resources to equip you to think biblically. While you are there, you can make a tax-deductible gift in support of the ministry. Again, thanks for listening.